Abolition. Abolition. Today. As Election Day results rolled in, it took a while for the man who helped spearhead ballot measures in five U.S. states to realize what he and others had accomplished. It really didn't sink in at first, you know, I was just going through the processes. Max Parthas heads the Abolish Slavery National Network. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today. It hit him when he recorded his weekly radio show. It's just so unbelievable. The 2022 journey for slavery abolition has reached its amazing conclusion. Voters in four of the five states overwhelmingly said slavery and involuntary servitude should be prohibited even as punishment for crime. The so-called exclusion clause of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution outlawing slavery still permits forced labor in prisons. For instance, you may have a prison guard who decides that uh, if a person doesn't want to work, they're going to put them in a hole for 30 days. Well, that's now illegal. And until we start to hold people accountable for that, they're going to continue to do it. This has been going on for 157 years. And most people don't even know that it, it exists. Curtis Davis did countless jobs in a Louisiana prison while serving a sentence for second-degree murder. His conviction was eventually overturned. For him, saying no to work was not an option. For me, it's about a dignity issue, about treating people with human decency. I knew it was wrong because it's inhumane. His state, because of a dispute over wording, was the only one of the five not to approve a slavery measure during this election. Eight U.S. states, including Colorado, have outlawed slavery in its entirety. But that doesn't mean forced labor will stop in all these places right away. It will be up to courts, Parthas says, to stop the practice of coercing prisoners to work under threat of sanctions or loss of privileges, a reality that's ongoing. It's okay to uh, have laws and constitutional amendments, but without a public opinion and a government willing to enforce those laws, they're a mockery. Slavery will be on the ballot in more states in coming years. The ultimate goal of abolitionists is a new federal amendment that bans slavery in whatever form for good. It's going to be a process. A process that's now achieved new momentum. Hendrick Sabrandi, CGTN, Denver. When they try to move in, you know what you must do, right? Coming out the room, whether the sun or the moon, it is safe to assume that we've been well groomed in the village of platoon. Drum signal out the boom once as you get doomed, we done. Here's a demonstration show, put the arrow to the bow, strategy to the bow, victory, see it glow, and we take the winner lap around the river, and we back, only God allowed that, we done. Show off with the mask that is now worn, devil man look around, say it's war torn, what do you know about the secrets bestowed and the stories we told, we done. Action, spiritual or physical, closer to the mystical, ancestor visit you, whistling in your ears, and you can hear clear, you know, we're moving out when the moon shines, and lay out in the sunshine. More time, well, it's now slime. Escape the rule, we the jewel, we the... See our women in the big boss. And the men, see they keep course. Quickly, we moving. Slick target grooving. Africa, all Africa, we about to blow like a harmonica, we about to show you that everything you sold is living and breathing and coming right back at you, oh listen, everything circular, begin and we'll end of us, I can tell by the look in your face when you look in our eyes that you really just scared of us, 
The new breed coming down that mountain. We ain't afraid of no thing. Fuck all that slating. Hey, this ain't Hollywood. This ain't a movie. Ain't golden cut. We cut in the front of the old system. So if you ain't with us, then you better run. Back up, put the cop in the car for shot. We the new breed and we really don't care. Going for the world to see Your insecurities not concerning me I mean, God is a woman, that's my firm belief And they want to burn it down to the third degree Grab a hold of the locks and insert the key How many leaders does it take to be free? Don't want to be Jack trying to get out the box Should be stuck in there if you don't know how much it's all cost Whoa, many layers is what's underneath Look a little closer, I promise I'm more than you see Please don't tell me you're different, I know I'm more than unique Self-loving the weed is all that I need Never sew up, I don't know the feet my heritage comes from royalty That crowns the throne of gold chains More pain and nothing's changed Still in chains Which one of you politicians Wanna be stepping in and up in a bad space Step in my ring, you better know it's a sad day Fuck trying to dismiss myself, I'll kick you out the damn place Make them go missing, won't even leave a damn trace Give me your best thing and I'll tell you that's a waste I've been investing in my shit from day Use the lies, you say it ain't great Go Network news clip with Henrik Sabrandi, and that was followed by James BKS New Breed featuring Q Tip, Idris Elba, and Little Sums. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major podcast platforms. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace and welcome back, Max. Uh, Peace, Yusuf. Um definitely uh, is a change to be back. It's been a minute now. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. A long time. <laughs> so, the 2022 journey for slavery abolition and the third season of abolition today reached an amazing conclusion. In an epic and historic election, four out of five states overwhelmingly voted to abolish slavery from their state constitutions, including deep south states like Alabama and Tennessee. In concert with the uh, Abolish Slavery National Network, the Freedom Five was a massive success. So in our season premiere, we'll be introducing the new breed. 
two of the new state organizers leading the way to abolish constitutional slavery in their states for the 2023 season. We'll be joined by Michigan's Ed Rushton and representing North Carolina, Abraham Syed. We'll also be joined by lead organizer for the Abolished Slavery National Network, Savannah Eldridge. And of course, we'll bring it all together with amazing music presentations and the Bridging the Gap to bring the ancestors' words back to life for a new generation. So before we jump into tonight's topic, Max, you ready? I was born ready. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. So um, a, a lot's okay. been going on since we last been on the air, right? Quite a bit, yes. First of all, we were supposed to be on air last week. Uh, people, We had let people know we were coming, coming back on the first. Uh, but right. I have to let you know uh, that I had some family issues that I had to deal with, uh, very important. Um, to be honest, it's involving my youngest son, who is not young. He's uh, 37 at, uh, now. Um, do you remember a couple of years ago, we had to race out in 2019 to California because he almost died um, involving uh, right. drugs. Uh, what's mm-hmm. the name of the drug again? It's a fentanyl. Involving fentanyl. fentanyl. Right. Five of his friends died. He was the only one to survive. My son was the only one to survive out of six people. And uh, two years later, they want to charge him with the deaths of the other five. He was 400 years in prison. Uh, so we had to go to court. They let him out on a jail, on a signature bond of about $30,000 that we pulled together. Uh, and he's got to go back to court on February 7th. So I'm going to be heading back out to Southern California for that. And we're trying to see if we can solve this problem ahead of time because we're talking about a victim, not a perpetrator. Like he literally right. was the only of his five five other friends to survive. He should have been dead. The only reason he wasn't dead, he said, is because at some point he uh, get, regained consciousness enough to throw up because he woke up in his throw up. And uh, that got rid of some of it out of his system, I guess. Uh, but it's life and death. So I had to deal with that. It is what it is. Um, there was some other bad news That's that rough. occurred, too. Um, one of our guests, former guests, you may remember John Sims, a mathematician, mm-hmm. spoken word artist, yeah. slavery abolitionist. His main thing was recolorization, where he would recolor the Confederate flag and memorabilia to various different things, red, black, and green. He had a big 20 by 30 foot, 30, 30 foot flag that we put on the Columbia uh, South Carolina Capitol steps the last time him and I were together uh, he passed away uh, I believe it was the 13th of December uh, it was unexpected uh, they won't say how he passed away uh, all they say is that he was found outside of his Florida studio dead and when I saw him last he was in great health uh, so you know last time we spoke to him on this program he was in great health so we right. really don't know what happened there, but uh, we we will miss you, John. Uh, your work will will for sure. Uh, for sure, for sure. So those the are mathematics of oppression. The mathematics of oppression, right? So get a chance. Yeah, he uh, came and broke it down episode. for us. The mathematics of oppression. Um, I'm looking forward to this new season uh, for so many different reasons. Uh, first of all, 
we've got a much larger season of lead organizers with already 14 states that either have legislation or have organized to get their legislation and another 10 that are working on it. So we're talking about 24 states this year. And at least half a dozen of those are university students or college students, young people leading the way, uh, just like they did in Oregon, where those uh, who uh, put that together in Oregon, like uh, Riley and Jordan, were all uh, Mm -hmm. university students who went on to law school while it was going on. (laughs) But they got it done. And that makes me happy to see uh, our young people standing up for something like this and making a difference. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, Yusuf? Yeah, you know, I'm really looking forward to this year, too, because we did the impossible last year. You know, there were many people who doubted. And, I mean, to get Alabama and Tennessee, you know, it just still rings so heavy in my mind, you know, especially those two. Because, it you always... know, being in the South, birth of the KKK, you know, that all of the history of Alabama. It was just amazing to get those along with Oregon and Vermont, you know, but it was just so huge. And so that shows that Colorado wasn't a fluke, that this is a real thing that's happening. And I'm looking forward to us having just such a tremendous year. Indeed. Um, it always seems impossible until it's done. Uh, Nelson Mandela said that. And you're right. Uh, we did uh, do the impossible. We've been doing the impossible since we started this because it was never supposed to right. happen. This was very right. well thought out and a complex system that was hidden throughout our history, even to the point where people were hiding it, not knowing why they were hiding it. I've seen uh, politicians stand up on the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment, read it in its entirety, and it never dawned on them that they just said, except for prisoners duly convicted. Like, it never even right. dawned on them. It, you know, uh, we, have, we have been so bamboozled, but it is clear as day. Uh, I don't want to talk too much. What I want At this point, what I want to do is go ahead and start introducing who will be having with us tonight. We've got a couple special guests that are joining us. I do want to give a heads up that Savannah Eldridge, the lead organizer for ASNN, uh, will be joining us, but about 6.30, so she'll be coming in late. She's dealing with some issues. But we do have Abraham Sayed. He's a student at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's the author of the book, The Much-Needed Updated Constitution for Our United States of America. Um, he gained interest in the Abolish Slavery National Network after noticing an exception to slavery or involuntary servitude as criminal punishment in the 13th Amendment and state constitution. Since then, He's been working with his state legislature to amend these outdated practices, and he hopes to see this change occur at the federal level, as well as with the 28th Amendment striking the exception clause found in the 13th Amendment. And then we're introducing as well Edmund Rushton. He's the executive director of the Michigan affiliate and the exception Michigan, partnered with the Organization of Exonerees in Detroit. He's been working in electoral politics for 10 years, beginning when he was just 14 years old. He studied social relations and policy at Michigan State University with a focus on prison policy in particular. He was the assistant for Dr. Robert L. Green, the former director of education for the SCLC, and close confidant of Martin Luther King. 
He worked in Lansing for two years under the training of the late great lobbyist Ken Cole. And Ed is a state-ordained minister who spends his free time doing what he loves most, preaching and teaching in correctional facilities across America. That's another thing I've noticed. A lot of our organizers have also been ministers. Uh, so thanks right. for joining us tonight. I'm going to go ahead and open their mics. Uh, let's start with uh, Brother Abraham. Welcome to Abolition Today. This is your first time, and we are happy to have you here and introduce you to uh, our listening audience. Hey, thank you so much. Yes, it's definitely a pleasure. This is the first time I've ever been invited to a podcast, so uh, I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> See, we, we got you doing a lot of first times, uh, and it's not going to end here. Trust me, you're going to be right. first time you ended uh, involuntary servitude in North Carolina. <laughs> That's going to happen, too. Uh, yeah, Brother Abraham is, is actually the author of the bill that we have for North Carolina. Uh, and we're going to be building around him, uh, getting organizers that have already been put into place very much. So like yourself, Yusuf, uh, will help right. to make sure that this right. thing is successful. He's in Chapel Hill, and I'm over here in Charlotte. And, yeah, we're going to we're gonna link up. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would definitely like to get more organizers in my state, particularly, obviously noting that, our neighbor to the west, Tennessee, was able to get it done. Us also being a, a southern state, um, right. I really want to see a coalition form within our state as well. So I'm glad that hopefully we'll be able to work on that soon um, in the coming months. Yeah. months. Before we get too much into the conversation, I want to go ahead and bring in our other guest, uh, Brother Edmund. Welcome back to Abolition Today. It's not your first time. Uh, but we are introducing you as the lead organizer for the Michigan effort in abolishing slavery. Well, it's great to be here, man. Yeah, and it's great to be back. It's great to have you back, too. Um, you know, we were, uh, we felt like, uh, uh, you know, lost puppies out there the last couple of weeks, and now now we feel a little bit more like pit bulls. You know, <laughs> everybody's ready to open the session. Yeah, I did drop off the map completely. Um, the first thing my wife and I did was go up to North Carolina at the top of the mountain at uh, Azul, uh, the cabin that they have up there, and we had it all to ourselves, like a big mansion for a few days. It was just to get away, you know what I mean? Like we worked so hard, oh, yeah. and it was the only possible chance that we could do that. So that, And it's been about a week or two just doing nothing, uh, not worried about nothing. Uh, you know, I feel like we're at a point where you exist and Abraham exists and Yusuf exists and it, it's not mm-hmm. all on me all the time. You know what I mean? Like you guys no. carry this torch. You know what I'm saying? Like if Max was not here tomorrow, it doesn't mean that Edmund or Abraham is stopping. This is going to move forward. So I'm very proud to know that you guys are in this world. You make it a better place. Well, man, I, I, I know you, you know, I feel the same way about you. Um, and, uh, just to give the audience a little bit of background on us, um, I'm calling you from the 313. Uh, the, okay, uh, Detroit. The home of, <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> a lot of great things have uh, come out of here in our social justice realm. Uh, Malcolm X spent a great deal of time in this state, and we've tried to craft our organization kind of uh, in, in his mindset. Uh, we're We're very proud of the fact that, um, we are uh, one of the only 501c4s in the state of Michigan 
whose board of directors is a majority uh, justice-impacted citizen. And by that I mean uh, more than mm -hmm. 50% of our board at all times has to be uh, made up of uh, of people who spend time in uh, a, a federal prison, a state prison, a juvenile, county jail, holding cell. Um, they, they, they've, you know, the, the people closest to the problem are the people closest to the solution as well. And uh, we're very proud of the team that we have uh, up and ready to go right now. Uh, Detroit, back in the day, had a code name on the Underground Railroad. Uh, our, our code name was Midnight. Canada was Dawn, the, the, where, where, you know, the, the, the promised land, uh, the mm -hmm. free zone. Um, I like we were that. Midnight. Yeah, it, it gets, uh, you know, nice, always darkest before the dawn. Darkest before and the things, dawn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things got pretty hairy up here. We had we had a lot of a lot of fights, a lot of riots break out back in the day, uh, trying to uh, pry the free men away from people who were trying to kidnap them after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and bring them down to the south. And um, I feel like with, with the organization of exonerees through uh, Ken Nixon, Marvin Cotton Jr., Marcus Kelly, uh, I feel like we've we've kind of put together – uh, a, a Freedman's Bureau for the new generation. Mm. Um, the his, history does repeat, and uh, that's some of the things that I've learned is that uh, we can use the wisdom of our ancestors because they are, were fighting the same thing we're fighting now. And if we're, you know, if not for their efforts, we wouldn't be where we are right now. So, you know, I studied like Frederick and uh, Harriet and John and, and so many others of the abolitionists to try to see how that applies to today, because uh, you can all, 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 almost always see the connection to what they're doing. So bringing back the Freedmen Bureau, good idea. Let me move over to Abraham real quick. Uh, you know, this is a bipartisan effort that we're doing, and Abraham represents or one of the conservatives that are a part of this movement to abolish slavery and involuntary servitude. Uh, Abraham, tell us a little bit about uh, the things that you found that we all had in common <laughs> and made you say, you know, yes, I'll work with these folks. Yeah, so um, obviously I don't want to get kind of too political here, but um, growing up I was raised in a pretty conservative household and I kind of utilized those aspects of my daily life, but I'm still in a sense very liberal in terms of maintaining prosperity for all the for all Americans, regardless if they're civil in custody or convicted. Um, my stance on criminal justice is very, very unique because a lot of conservatives typically um, nowadays, they're pretty tough on crime and um, they are more for allocating a lot of the funds towards militaries, polices, prisons, and they don't really want to get into economics. And I, me and Max actually agree a lot on many of the things that conservatives do. So, for example, just because we differ on criminal justice reform does not mean we're against police. You know, I respect, I will defend, and I will support 100% very good law enforcement officers. We need them in our societies. We need good judges, good prosecutors. Because that's you need that in order for a civilized system to work. Um, but then the question remains: How do you do that? Obviously, mo many people on my side of the aisle, so to speak, will use kind of more emotional uh, practices towards that, and I don't blame them. You know, mm -hmm. it's very hard to convince.
people who have been a victim of a crime, that what's going to happen? How is the person that committed the offense going to be held accountable? But at the same time, we also have the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, so which not only prohibits excessive bails and fines, but also makes sure that accountability is not cruel and unusual. Um, they, you know, the Bill of Rights was there for a purpose, and a lot of conservatives today. Uh, I don't know if you hear Ted Cruz on the radio typically talking about him and his party being the the party who loved the Bill of Rights. Well, they don't really seem mm. to show it. <laughs> for sure. Um, and, yeah, so me and Max really are kind of a, a very unique um, unique spot on this issue. But, you know, it was Republicans during that time in Abraham Lincoln's party that – that were really the abolitionists in that day. Um, I don't think, uh, based on my research, uh, Democrats during that time really supported this. And it's kind of very, very surprising to me that the party today um, doesn't view the same responsibility towards, towards addressing those issues that the Democrats have. It's kind of like they almost flopped. And And, yeah. Yeah, you're, you are right. Uh, but there was a change that occurred back in 1964, I believe, uh, the year of my birth with the presidential election at that time, where uh, they started appealing to the Southern Democrats, the Dixocrats, remember? And uh, right. somehow Republicans became Democrats, and Democrats re- became Republicans in regards to slavery uh, and freedom and rights. So there was a big switch that went on in that period. Um, and But still, both have had their hands in the pot before and after. Uh, slavery was created by Democrats. And even to this day, a lot of the um, bills, like the 1994 Crime Bill and many others like that, have come from the Democratic Party. Uh, we have run into some issues in the abolitionist movement where it was the Democrats that stood against us, uh, like in California. Uh, and in Louisiana. And, and it can get a little confusing because when something is bipartisan, it means that you can get screwed over from both sides. <laughs> you know, not just one side, both sides can screw you over. So that's what we're dealing with. Uh, for us, this is a human rights issue and a constitutional issue, and that's how we're trying to address it. A crime against humanity literally happened. Uh, in North Carolina, they have a very unique constitution. There's only two states constitutions like theirs in the United States, California, and North Carolina that have abolished slavery, but have continued to keep involuntary servitude on the books. And we know that the definition of both of those is not very dissimilar, involuntary servitude and slavery. Uh, So it's kind of a loophole within the loophole. Uh, But nonetheless, we are definitely going to get it out of there uh, because there should be no exception to slavery. Uh, for any reason, whether you change the name of it or not, uh, if you're calling it forced labor or mass incarceration or whatever it is you want to call it, it's still the same thing. Um, slavery by another name. Yeah, and you're right, Max. Um, appeal to you exactly. is that human rights issue, right? Right. And in North Carolina statute, actually, I believe it's, um, I think it's, it was in 2014. We actually have define involuntary servitude, and it basically means satisfying a debt using coercion or kind of basically being very punitive in a sense. 
and that is no different than than slavery. You're right. It's just it's it's kind of slavery by another name, and right. it's, it's kind of unfortunate that yes, we have abolished slavery in our state constitution, but involuntary servitude is still there for convict for convicts. And I would actually go on to say more that if you read the Thirteenth Amendment, it gets very confusing. Because there are some people that will say, yes, the 13th Amendment did abolish slavery. You're just reading the text wrong. So the neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, and then you have the exceptions clause. So they think the exceptions clause is for involuntary servitude only and not slavery. And that's the way I see it, just based on kind of the the typical rules of English. But even if that's the case, even if we're going to say, okay, well, we abolish slavery, why don't we abolish voluntary servitude? It makes perfect sense to me. And that that ambiguity is really what causes a lot of interpretation and a lot of um, confusion. Abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you're leaving a lot of room for interpretation there because when I read the 13th Amendment, I look at it as, okay, well, based on the clauses and the context, that clause seems to go with involuntary servitude. Um, but some might say, no, it, it actually goes with both slavery and involuntary servitude. And that's something that we need to address. It's something we need to fix so we don't have any misrepresentations or um, later down the road applications or implementations of the wrong interpretation being uh, being held or being practiced. So. Right. Um I want to play a clip for us to discuss afterwards, but before I do that, I want to get in one more uh, question for Edmund. Um, and that is, based on what you were just saying, Abraham, that conservatives tend to be very much uh, uh, pro-police or, what did you say, uh, pro-tough against crime, right? Uh, but what's yeah, happening in his state, what's happening in his state, I think, is more of the reality of it, is pro-punishment. They just want to punish people to no end. An example of that is Michigan just got a brand new Supreme Court justice, and she hired a former felon who spent 15 years paying for his crime. Uh, he was, I believe, in a robbery, and then they shot at the police uh, as he was trying to get away. No one was hit or shot, but nonetheless, <clears throat> he spent 15 years for it in prison, got out, got his law degree, changed his life. And now he was hired as an aide to the Supreme Court Justice in Michigan, the first black woman Supreme Court Justice in Michigan. And another judge decided that this was something he felt was disgusting and shameful that they would do that. Edmund's going to give us the names of it, I'm sure, uh, of who said these things. But apparently he demanded that they terminate him. Uh, because it was shameful to have a former felon as an aide to a Supreme Court justice. Now, this man has paid his dues. He's paid his for his crimes. He served his time. He came out as a changed person with, and showed it by changing his entire life. And yet here we are, years down the line, where he's being punished for something he's already paid for. Uh, you want to go into I mean, a little bit more detail on that, it's it's been a, a very crazy week here to start off the new government in Michigan, um, and, and you know I, I I heard Abraham talking a lot about Democrats, and um, it it has been a very uh, strange phenomenon for Democrats. They have just won 
every level of the government in Lansing. The House is now Democrat. The Senate is now majority Democrat. Both of those things were not the case last year. They, they flipped both majorities. And they have a stronger majority now on the Michigan Supreme Court. The uh, highlight of all of that is uh, Ms. Uh, Kira Bolden uh, is now, well, I, mm-hmm. I should say, Justice Bolden. She has become the first uh, black female Supreme Court justice in the history of the state of Michigan. We, we're, we're familiar with her work in Detroit. Uh, the exonerees are big fans of hers, and I, I count myself among those fans. Um, and she hired a man named Pete Martell, who in 1992, yeah, he, he got locked up for an armed robbery, had an exchange of fire with the police, and that went in the court documents. Now, this man does 15 years. This man does 15 years of hard time in the state pen probably working every day for around 17 cents an hour, maybe less than that. Um, No breaks, by the way. You don't get holidays in in prison. You don't get time off and and, and paid leave. No, you're you're working weekends. You're working around the clock. So he did that for 15 years, and his soul did not break miraculously. He gets out in 2008, goes to Wayne State, gets a law degree, and starts earning the respect of the entire Michigan legal community. Uh, this, this is a very well-respected legal mind in Southeast Michigan. Um, and Pete Martell gets brought on board by Kira, the first female black uh, Supreme Court justice in this state to ever wear those robes. She picks Pete to be her clerk. And a justice, a Democratic justice, Richard Bernstein, decides to throw a tantrum about this matter. He says that he is uh, intensely pro-law enforcement, and he says that it is disgusting that Justice Bolden has made this decision. This is a woman he campaigned with for months last year, you know, marching around with her saying, I'm with, I'm with Ms. Bolden, she's with me. And now, because she has made this one hiring decision, he decides, I'm never speaking to her again. Our, 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 our policies are different. Uh, we, we have two different of opinions. I'm pro-police, and I don't think anybody who ever has a crime like that on their record should be allowed to work in the Supreme Court. So basically, if, you, if you've been to prison, if you are uh, a criminal or have a, a, a criminal record somewhere uh, in your history, no matter how long, no matter how respected that history might be, no matter how respected that redemption might be, to folks on the Supreme Court, they, they, they can't put it past him, you know. It's it's a it's a unwillingness to forgive, to redeem, and to rehabilitate, and um, and yeah, it's it's been quite a show the last couple of days since Pete decided to resign. He Kira was ready to stand stand behind him and say, no, I I, I like this hire. I, I like Pete Martel. Um, we we need justice impacted people working at the highest levels of our government, which we do. Um, and uh, Pete said, I I don't want you to have to fight for me. He came here to fight for the people, and so he uh, he humbly um, withdrew. And uh, and now now we're we're standing in a situation where we have a man on the Supreme Court who shields himself with this line that I'm a Democrat, so how can I be against criminal justice reform? But I am against anyone who has ever called a criminal. Yeah. My old, my, I have a black friend, so how can I be a racist? I get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, right. You know? it's, it's just they throw they they 
slap that sticker on their chest and and think that that yeah. absolves them of something, but uh, it, it certainly does not absolve him of uh, our scrutiny and our impact. Uh, on yeah, racism is also about the election process. <laughs> Oh, without a doubt, yeah. It it doesn't stop at Democrats or Republicans. Uh, It covers every aspect of society. But thanks for letting us know that. Well, there's there's many organizations around the state right now that want this guy to resign. Um, And and who knows? You know, tomorrow he's probably going to have to make a response to all this blowback. Um, But what we want is we're – requesting that the Michigan Bar Association and the Michigan Judicial Council review Justice Bernstein's conduct, this uh, exposed bias and this abuse of office uh, to look at his legal record and decide if this man might need to recuse himself from future cases involving the review of law enforcement if he's already coming out this quote-unquote intensively pro-law enforcement. You know, I have another clip later we're going to play that's going to speak on these things you're mentioning now and remind you, and you already know, but remind everybody uh, the price of speaking out the truth. Uh, but first, I do want mm-hmm. to play a clip about what it is that we're dealing with. I've got something from Jake Donovan, who does Game the System, and he talks about legalized slavery through the private prison system. Now, we know that the for-profit private prison systems only make up about 8% of the prison populations here in the United States, but they're a global phenomenon. Uh, the for-profit private prison company, G4S, uh, which was just swallowed up by another larger prison company, was at one time the third largest privately owned corporation on earth, uh, right underneath, I think, Walmart. Uh, they were number three. That's how big they've grown globally. And they exploit the system of profit in nations that don't even have close to the rights we enjoy here. It is true rights against uh, crimes against humanity. But let's go ahead and listen to what he has to say about this, and we'll discuss it on the other side. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with two of the new breed for uh, the 2023 uh, session to end slavery. We'll be right back after this. Abolition, Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. There are 2.2 million people locked up in the United States alone. As of 2018, the United States' rate of incarceration was 655 people per 100,000, which is nearly double the next leading nation. So what's the story here? Is the United States just filled with so many more criminals than other countries? I'm afraid the answer is not so simple. The prison system in the United States is a money machine for a few large corporations. These corporations have a vested interest in keeping that machine running. Like many vendors that sell to the U.S. government, they expend a significant amount of money lobbying the government and structuring deals to maximize their profits. Proponents of the system argue that organizations run much more efficiently than the government and in fact save society money, but there's little data to actually prove this. The privatization of the criminal justice industry is just one piece of the puzzle. If you look at the way the government acted during this time period, you'll notice some things that are too interesting to ignore, particularly the effect that these policies had on minority communities. It's no secret that minorities, and particularly those of African descent, have had a rough go of it throughout the history of the United States. 
They had a big win in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. But it's important to look at what that amendment actually says. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist in the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. That qualifier, the part where it says, except as punishment for a crime, will be used repeatedly to do harm to not only black Americans, but anyone caught up in the for-profit prison system. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Shortly after the 13th Amendment was ratified, two additional amendments were added to the benefit of black Americans. The 14th Amendment gave black people equal protection under the law, and the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. Now, this made some states, particularly southern states, upset because, well, racism. They didn't like the people they were once controlling now were equal under the eyes of the law. So they started to create some laws called Jim Crow laws that prevented black Americans from attending the same school or using the same public restrooms or from voting if they couldn't pass voter literacy tests. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a massive movement in the black community for truly equal rights. They demanded these civil rights, and through years of effort, they got several really important laws passed, and there were some powerful Supreme Court decisions in their favor. But this, too, was too good to be true. Enter the War on Drugs. Is it a coincidence that Nixon started the War on Drugs in 1971, immediately following the Civil Rights Movement? And furthermore, is it a coincidence that the War on Drugs has disproportionately affected black men? Surely it can't be a coincidence that in 2001, the number of imprisoned black men was the same as the number of enslaved black men in 1820? In response to the growing number of people being convicted for drug-related crimes, in 1984, the first private prison was opened in Tennessee by a company called Core Civic. In the six years that followed, 66 additional private prisons would be opened. You might be thinking, there's a difference between being imprisoned and being enslaved. And I would argue that no, there is not, not in our current system. I would argue that slavery is imprisonment for economic gain, plain and simple. Before 1865, the economic gain materialized based on the sale of the goods that the slaves produced. In the era of prison privatization, the economic gain comes from the imprisonment itself. Private prisons make their money through contracts with the government. If they estimate that they can house an inmate for $100 a day, but then turn around and sell a contract to the government for $150 per inmate per day, they can net $50 worth of profit per day. If they can further reduce the cost of housing an inmate, say by making them work the fields to produce the food that they need to eat, or by reducing staff, or by making the living conditions worse inside the prison, they can take home more of that $150. Private prisons are not incentivized to make the prison system better. In fact, they're incentivized to do the opposite. Private prisons are dangerous. They often cut crucial services such as cleaning. Healthcare is notoriously worse in private prisons than in state-run prisons. Sometimes they cut back on guard training that results in preventable injury and possibly death for both guards and inmates alike. They're also incentivized to keep the prisons full. One reason that private companies such as Geo Group and Core Civic are publicly traded companies is so that they can lobby the government, supporting candidates that are more likely to be tough on crime. 
If there's more crime, there's more money to be made. So where do we go from here? It's worth mentioning that there are many detractors in our government currently, people who care deeply about abolishing the private prison system. Candidates like Bernie Sanders have been very loud in their support for abolishing this thing entirely. But I would encourage you to start smaller than that. There are many states that don't house any inmates in private prisons. Your state could be the next one if you make your opinion known and contact your state representatives. Change starts small sometimes, and with enough support, your state could be the next one to abolish private prisons. It's time we stopped putting people in prison for ridiculous charges. And it's time we stopped lining people's pocketbooks with blood. I'm Jake Donovan with Game the System, and please, if you enjoyed this video, make sure to give it a like and give us a follow. Thanks. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. 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 Wow. So, welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We have our guests, Ed Rustin and Ibrahim Saeed, the part of the new breed for 2023. You just heard Jake Donovan from Game the System, Legalize Slavery, the Private Prison System. That was heavy. And so, you know, for our guest, uh, what we normally do is after a track, we go to the guest and get their comments on the on the track that we just listened to. So I'll start with you, Abraham. Yes. So um, did you just want my thoughts on the video? You can just clarify yes. the question again. Yes. yes. Or any 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 input you wanted to uh, you know add or comments you wanted to make on the track that you just heard. I think it was pretty accurate. The way a lot of other countries, especially the uh, Scandinavian countries and Germany, um, they use the labor from what I've seen. Because again, my don't quote me on this. I my knowledge is very limited on those countries, but from what I've seen. Um, they have industries where prisoners do labor, but they provide them adequate care. Compensation is pretty good. A lot of their rights and privileges are enshrined in, in their constitutions. And I think I saw a video somewhere a couple, maybe months ago. There was this inmate who was locked up for some priest. I think it was something with murder, but he is now actually... He, he he has kind of a luxury suite compared to what we have here. He's able to go to university outside of prison as long as he gets back within a specific amount of time. And he's been reaching out to civil um, civil employers in Finland for, for jobs. He's been doing job interviews. And that, to me, is just a big, big improvement. It, it, it just shows you how advanced some of these other countries are taking when it comes to labor and people performing the labor and providing a good example of that labor, not in a punitive way. You know, it's, it's, is there a moral issue behind it? Absolutely. I believe there's a moral issue. If the whole point is of labor is supposed to provide a good example for people, then why not, why not implement those and give those inmates those opportunities to do good? You know, it's and I, I do agree in the video where it was saying, um, especially about cutting um, 
how it hurts the economy if you have people in prison working for free or for pennies um, in comparison to paying someone seven fifty an hour or seven twenty five or whatever the minimum wage is. It's it's just shocking, you know. We're a country that's supposed to be leading the way for other countries to look up to, and to see many of these other European countries that don't have the history we do just just to make major improvements with their labor conditions and inmates you know we it's it's a shock as someone who's very patriotic about this country and and love the ideals of this country we're so far behind and that's actually why if um I don't know if you're able to take a look at my bill I proposed to my legislator but when I was talking about abolishing involuntary servitude in our state constitution, I was worried that people who were, you know, who would be against the amendment or the bill, if you want to basically maintain the status quo, they would say, well, if you abolish involuntary servitude, you're basically abolishing prison, prison labor. And who's going to make those license plates and those school chairs? And what I, I added language to clarify that, just because you get rid of forced labor doesn't mean you get rid of labor itself. I'm a big believer and I'm a big advocate in working. Is It, it creates discipline. It creates humbleness. It creates um, a good incentive for someone to, to, make, a, to make a good living. Um, but we should really make that work voluntary, respecting everybody's rights, conditions, terms, privileges, you name it. Um, that's kind of the way I want to see prison labor be changed. But in terms of the video, it, it was right in terms of the information. I, I, I agree with that. Thank you, Abraham. Um, I see we have our other guest on, and I do want to give a chance for Edmund to uh, comment on what he heard. And I'd also like to comment on some of it. But before we uh, do that, let's go ahead and bring in our other guest. Uh, Savannah, you're there, right? Hi, good evening, everybody. Right. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, hey, Savannah. Hey, Savannah. Welcome once again, Savannah Eldridge, the lead organizer for the Abolish Slavery National Network and founder and CEO of Be Frank for Justice and lead organizer for Texas's CAST, uh, ending slavery in Texas as well. Uh, welcome back, uh, Savannah. Uh, would you like to uh, comment on what we heard? I, I believe you were listening to that. I missed it, so I'm gonna. Oh, okay. I was kind of hoping you would call on <laughs> call on Edmund first, but I first let me just thank you so much for the warm welcome. I always find a home here on Abolition today, um, and I'm also always a student of you guys and always, you know, learning whether it's through music or um, just the thoughts that are shared. So, um, just grateful to be in this space with everybody. And hello, Edmund, and hello, Abraham. Yes. How are we doing? Uh, Indeed, you guys will be working together in the very near future. All right, uh, well, let's go ahead over to Edmund. Uh, Edmund, would you like to make any comments on what you heard? Oh, man. I mean, I heard a lot of names there that I've uh, I've had to learn quite a lot about over over my years working in this. And uh, Richard Nixon is definitely one of them. Um, I know Abraham mentioned earlier that he comes from a conservative family and I don't know if I'd call my upbringing a, a conservative family. Um, my uh, 
my attorney, who was also my mother, was a very liberal woman for most of her life and, uh, and still is to this day. She's a volunteer attorney with the uh, Wayne County Convictions Integrity Unit. Um, so it's the two of us are kind of uh, both involved in the cause in our own way. Um, but my father uh, worked for Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And, oh, wow. um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, played quite a role in uh, how I ended up where I am, I suppose. Um, he, he was very politically involved, and um, he's he passed away now, so there's no real way to ask him what, what his role might have been in, um, in in the militarization of the police and, and the prison boom of the last 30 years. Um, but I know that there, there were many men he worked with who uh, played a direct role in this. Um, and I, we were talking about Nixon, or not, not quite Nixon earlier, but the, the shift of the Republican appeal to Southern Democrats, and um, that that is a, a historical phenomenon that's known as the Southern Strategy, right. drawn up by a few political lobbyists: uh, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, and uh, another gentleman, Lee Atwater. And the same Roger Stone that's involved with Trump and was uh, indicted in jail. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. As well. Yeah, I was just thinking. You know, those names sound very familiar. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they come up in the paper every now and then, usually in conviction reports. But um, you know that that was a that was a, a chess piece. This this idea of thinking that there is that this is a, a a group of people that if they make their their voices heard one of two things will happen. Either nobody will believe them or people will believe them, but they will feel a, a relief or, or a superiority uh, about the people that it's happening to. You know, at, at the same time that we're locking up people at exponentially higher rates every year, you turn on the TV and what do you see? Uh, Cops is the number one watch program in America for 20 years running. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's this process of, and I think about this as, uh, you know, we're, we're based out of Detroit, our organization, but I, I am from Oakland County. Um, as, as Curtis uh, and I like to call them, uh, the, we're very familiar with the, the country club people of, uh, of Michigan and, and the surrounding area of Detroit. And another way to refer to Oakland County is uh, the white flight capital of America. It is where uh, the majority of, of wealthy people left Detroit, pulling all their investments out and taking them up uh, I-75 over to Oakland County. Um, and since then, the uh, backlash has been very intense. Um, there's there's a lot of people in Detroit who have criminal records, and those criminal offenses come from police departments in Oakland County. Um, there, for, for about 20 years, you could consider that area a modern-day uh, sundown town. And if, if uh, you don't know what I mean by that in in the Green Book, the, the not the movie, but mm-hmm. the actual Green Book, um, a, a sundown town was a place uh, it, where black motorists would be uh, advised: you do not, you, you if if the sun's down, you you don't stop there for gas. You you if there's another way to drive around that area, you drive around it instead of driving through it. Um, and uh, that that was very much the culture bleeding into the 21st century in Michigan. And um, and I think that's you know it's, it starts with a goal to win elections, and that that's what it was in the 70s and 80s. If we can make 
uh, white people believe, if we, what was the exact quote? If we can associate the hippies with weed and the blacks with heroin, we can criminalize mm-hmm. both groups, take out their leaders, and debilitate their communities. That, that demonize was, uh, them the night words. after night on the evening news. Yeah, on the evening right. news. That's, that's the words of John Ehrlichman, the White House uh, policy chief during Nixon's administration. And, right. um, and I, I think we still see that to this day. So what, what I, I try to tell people is if, if you're from a place like Oakland County or if you're from the, the country club places of different states around this country, when they, when they feel like they don't get it, I, I think the, the quickest way to put it in their backyard is either you, you point them to the exception clause straight away and say, look, you, we've been lied to as a country for 150 years straight, believing that slavery is illegal and a thing of the past. And 158. Really the truth yeah. is 158 years in, in what, yep. three weeks, right? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and and for it's, it's important for those people to know when it comes to the inner cities and the people who live in, in the inner cities um, – if, if you're if you're from outside of those places, uh, more more comfortable upbringings, you you need to know that with the culture that's been built in this country, you were you were taught to watch them, not to see them. You know, watching is not seeing. As, as, as somebody you can watch, you can be entertained by anything that happens to them. And just like in cops, people across the country were entertained by police officers kicking in people's doors, driving tanks into people's houses, locking people up. For not being able, able to answer a question the right way, that was that's still to this day that is entertainment in this country, and um, and I, I think that's that's as much as we're as, as what we're fighting for as we're fighting for uh, the people on the inside who whose stories are not getting told at all. Who we you know I think the powers that be are aware that if the stories of what's happening on the inside of our correctional facilities gets out. We've got a huge problem on our hands, according to the Justice Department and the uh, Department of Corrections. Um, another person on our board, uh, I won't say his name because he's still um, he's he's oh, a wrongfully convicted man. He spent nine years in prison and uh, had his conviction overturned uh, in the last five years. The Department of Corrections mm-hmm. continuously is trying to appeal his exoneration and put an innocent mm-hmm. man back in prison. And the reason that they're doing that is because this gentleman organized hunger strikes when he was on the inside. So not only does he know what it's like to be a, a prisoner and a slave in the eyes of the law, he knows how hard corrections departments strike back at our incarcerated population when they stand up and when they say uh, that, that they've had enough. Um, Edmund and Abraham, um I definitely want to share some comments with you in regards to what we played, uh, as well as a a couple ideas, and then we're going to take a music break. But before we do that, I know that I asked you to stay with me an hour. I also also let you know that time flies on this program real quick. Uh, There's an invitation for you to stay as long as you would like to stay, around two hours. Um, If you want to continue the conversation, let me know. If not, I'll give you an opportunity to have any final comments or websites or links that you would like our audience to go to uh, before you leave. So will you be staying or will you be going? Uh, Abraham? Oh, I can stick around. Good. All right. I'll be here. Ed- Ed- That's Edmund, fine. You'll be here? Okay. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, 
so as far as my comments in regards to uh, what we heard about private prisons, as I said earlier, uh, we know that private prisons represent a small percentage of the prison industry here, but what they have done has been mimicked by state, uh, federal, and county uh, prisons and jails. There was one statement he made within his commentary. He said, economic gain comes from the imprisonment itself. What we call that is warehousing bodies here. So the warehousing the bodies is itself the revenue generator. They just need to pick you up and put you in a cage, and there is X amount of dollars uh, annually that is generated through that. And if you work, that's even more uh, that they would save. But that is something that is often overlooked within this system and is done at every level, including across the globe. Uh, over the past week, I've had discussions uh, with organizations that represent uh, in, uh, as many as 55 countries, 45 countries, they said, uh, and they uh, are willing to help us to get more and more uh, attention across the globe issue because other nations are dealing with what we created here. Uh, and I think that uh, that would only put us in a better position, the pressure from the outside. Uh, just the other day, we were on live television with the China Global Television Network. Uh, we had They played a clip that you heard in our opening track, and then they also had Bianca Tylik representing Amanda 13th uh, on behalf of the ASNN, and three other guests on a live panel talking about this issue and exposing it uh, very well. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that uh, the economic development program of prison for profit has become a global phenomenon in our lifetimes. It's like watching the, the uh, Atlantic slave trade come up in a digital world. All right. Uh, commentary uh, to close us off before we go into our music clip. Uh, Abraham, anything? Yeah. Um, I wanted to – so this is kind of on the same different topic. Um Sorry, is your name Edmund or Edward? I'm sorry. I, Edmund. Name Ed, Edmund. Edmund. Okay. Whatever you want to call me. If you were Jamaican, oh, call you'd be like, Edmund. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be uh, respectful. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you were talking about, just to kind of clarify that Department of Corrections um, pursuit against that uh, innocent man, I've actually think it's important that, and not just for Department of Corrections and prison institutions, but also our law enforcement, judicial, and prosecutorial institutions. Um, I think we should, and this might not solve it, but having an independent commission, you know, run by the people of that particular jurisdiction or community, having oversight of those facilities to keep them on their toes, making sure that if they slip up, um, or if they prohibit the people of that community from monitoring certain checks, um, there will be consequences and accountability. Now, I actually, it's funny enough, because in addition to this slavery thing, I, I was trying to work on that committee, and I have that legislation kind of built in. So if you would like, Edmund, um, I can send it over to Max, the document, and you guys can take a look at it. And maybe that should be able to help your situation. I'm not sure if it would, but, you know, at this point, I, mean, I, I think definitely, I, I would be very interested to take a look at that wording. Um, I know up here we've got one of the bulkiest and, and well-funded 
um, law enforcement lobbies at the state level um, in the country. Right. So something that I've, I've run into before, we've, um, we've tried to organize police oversight committees in a few cities around the state. And the first well, thing you're going to get, the first thing you're going to get when you try to form an oversight committee is a letter from the general counsel of POAM, the police officers union saying that this is going to violate due process and we will sue the city and whoever we have to, to make sure that this shuts down. Now there's still ways to navigate around that and um, uh, create an oversight committee that can have some level of impact. You know, your opposition is going to try to make it as toothless as possible, but the bottom line is if, if you go through the appeals and through the courts, what it's going to come down to, is the fact that the people in these facilities, at least in Michigan, are still slaves in the eyes of the law. So they should be afforded no rights, you know, and that's, that's where they get robbed yeah. of, of their time off and of their, you know. Um, one thing that will happen pretty frequently, and this, this isn't just Michigan, this is around the country, um, if prisoners protest or if prisoners strike and say we're not working until we have uh, uh, OSHA protection or, um, or health insurance, for the jobs we're doing. If they strike on something like that, the first response, the, the normal instinctual response of corrections departments is to starve the protesting inmates out, move them from three meals a day down to two. Right. And that is a, a legally backed up process in, in this state. Um, and, and it will continue to be exactly that until the law recognizes the people in these facilities as people, as human beings, not chattel, not property of the state, not free labor. Well, that's why, why we that's good. the Harvard Bellagio guidelines on slavery, because people just make up these definitions of slavery, but we already have a definition of slavery. And it addresses issues like that, like in guideline two, uh, the exercise of powers attached to the rights of ownership. It says in cases of slavery, the exercise of the powers attached to the right of ownership should be understood as constituting control over a person in such a way as to significantly deprive that person of his or her individual liberty with the intent of exploitation through the use, management, profit, transfer, or disposal of that person. Usually, this exercise will be supported by and obtained through means such as violent force, deception, and or coercion. Now, isn't that coercion when you're starving people, it's also Eighth Amendment violation, cruel and unusual punishment. And in places like New Jersey, their policies treat a strike, a labor strike, as they would a murder or a rape. It's the same crime inside the prison. Right, right. The point system. Yeah, that that's pretty big. You get, um, a, I think it's a 14 point offender in the Michigan prison system. Um, if if you kill somebody. Or a four-point, a, a four-point offender. If you kill somebody in jail, you automatically get four points. Right. Uh, if you organize a strike, you also automatically get four, four points. points. So that means exactly. money taken out of your commissary, time in solitary. You know, they, they treat you like you're the worst of the worst if you get these people on the inside talking to each other. And, and it leads to direct punishment. Just giving you those points is a form of that. Uh, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to get into a musical track, and I also want to give a chance to Savannah to say something if she feels it. Savannah, are you still with us? Yes, I'm still here, guys. Any, anything like you'd like to share before we go into our music break? Well, um, I just um, 
want to thank Edmund and um, Abraham for um, their thoughts um, specifically about, like, independent oversight, which um, we have a bill here in Texas as well. But um, I think with any system um, that's being exploited, um, oversight is going to be difficult to achieve but very necessary, right? Um, and we know that, like, even here in the state, Texas where I live, like, you know, you have to know somebody to be able to get into the prisons, like, um, not as a volunteer, but I'm saying to be able to go in there unannounced, which is really what needs to happen. As long as they know and can expect that people are going to be in there, they have time to, not that you can make things pretty, but, you know, kind of, co not coerce, but talk to people, you know, and be a little bit prepared about um, what conversations are go going to happen. And I think that the state, like Pennsylvania, I believe Pennsylvania does have um, in, like a third-party um, organization or company that does independent oversight in the prison. Um, and the, their prison system actually welcomes um, that organization because they've built a relationship with them. I'm not sure if um, it it's driven any positive outcomes, but um, it just lends to the fact that, you know, we can put forth any bill that we want to, but we need to be sure that we oversee the implementation of these pieces of legislation. That is more important almost than getting the bill passed. Like, next right. step, we need to strategically um, think about, like, what these bills are going to do and know or at least be able to get a general idea of what the next steps are going to be because if we are if we are responsible right uh, for for trying to, to make change no matter what it is then we should be equally responsible responsible to see it through and that's what i i hope for you know any any organization or any system that we're trying to to change for the better um, because it's a long, it's a long haul, and even with independent oversight, like we know that it's needed. We know most states don't have conviction integrity units, and we know that that's needed. You know, statistics show that you know our criminal injustice system is just is not uh, effective, and so we would actually save resources if we took the time um, to have people ensure that we were using them the way they were supposed to be used. So I just want to thank you guys for naming that. Um, and, yeah, I mean, law is law is, is difficult in that it doesn't always mean, like, justice, right? But I'm really, really, really passionate about the implementation of the law, and that's where I study the most. Like, during our legislative session, like, I'm, I'm thankful when the bills pass, but I always try to go back with the organizations who are um, supporting the laws, who are supporting the sponsors, to be sure that, you know, like, what are the next steps and what are the plans moving forward. Thank you, Savannah. Um, that's a great intro to our music break, uh, because, you know, I, I look at you all as superheroes. <laughs> like, you're, you're standing on the shoulders of giants, and you are giants of your own right to get this done. Mm -hmm. and sometimes there's a price to be paid for that. And let's listen to Cat Williams talk about that price, followed by <laughs> the score, Unstoppable. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan, 
We're joined by our guests Edmund Rushton as well as Abraham Saeed and Savannah Eldridge. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 I don't really know how to complain because all of the people that I ever looked up to had to go through it too. So I know how much they talked about Martin Luther King, and I know what they end up doing to him. I know this same story about Jesus and a few of my uncles. So now I know that if your mouth is really, really big and you try to tell the truth for a living and you like to air people out, hatred is coming your way. I didn't know it was going to be this type of hatred. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm concrete in all things. Uh, because of he who strengthens me. So that doesn't mean I always make the right decisions, but I am going to stand by what I stand for. And um, I'm only continuing to do it because I was looking for somebody who was doing it instead of me. Mm -hmm. And I just must have missed them. You know what I mean? So yeah. at some point you have to figure out what example are you trying to be. If it's just going to be you going to make it and live happily ever after and go off into the sunset, and that's what that is. Otherwise, you're on the front line of this battle. And those of us who understand that, um, understand that this is a part of what comes with it. There's a moment in your bones when, when the fire takes over. Blood is running, heart is pumping as the battle gets closer.
You just heard Cat Williams, The Price of Truth Telling, and that was followed by The Score, Unstoppable. Welcome back to Abolition Today with Max Parkes and Yusuf Hassan, along with our guests, Ed Rushton, Abraham Syed, and Savannah Eldridge. And, wow, you know, The Price of Truth Telling. And we're, we're unstoppable. We're man. unstoppable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you and I basically had that type of conversation before we even came on the air. Like, you know, if anything happens, this movement is going to go on. You know, unlike many of the movements of the past where it was just the charismatic leader, and then once the leader was gone, the movement died. You know, we don't have that type of movement. This abolished slavery national network, ASN itself, and then all of the other organizations out there that are doing the same work. It's unstoppable. All right, uh, let's go ahead to Savannah. Uh, uh, any comments, thoughts? Hey, guys, I really there is appreciate a price that. To pay. Isn't right. there? Man, isn't there? And you know what? You don't have to, it doesn't take long to figure it out, right? I mean, I organize in different um, areas around different causes, and I can tell you firsthand, like, this work is exhausting. Right. I'm, I, and I don't want to say people go down, but if you don't take care of yourself in this work, like um, it can mm-hmm. be emotionally and physically harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's really important because, you know, in the clip, Cat Williams talked about, like, you know, speaking your truth, even though people are constantly like coming at you, that never ceases. Once you make a decision to stand for something and there's someone who is against you, you know, even if it's just because they have a difference of opinion, it they seem to do a really good job at trying to galvanize people against you, right? Galvanize another group or another sector of people. And the reason why that's really important in fighting this cause is because this is this fight that we're we're we are assuming, right? It is not new. This is, it's a factual thing that slavery has been um, allowed to continue. Um, it's a factual, it's a known fact. This isn't something that we didn't just write the Constitution. We didn't, this, <laughs> these things are known. And the only not answer even. that people could ever give us is that we can't afford it. We can't hmm. afford it. But we know that what we do know is that our 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 criminal justice system is making two billion dollars off of goods and nine billion dollars off of services from incarcerated workers. So if we if you're saying that we can't afford what can we afford, right? If incarcerated workers have the right and, and send the prisoners right, they have the right to work. So if they have the right to work they should also have the right to name when they're unable to work, not the people who are responsible for overseeing that work, right? And and furthermore, the majority of the people that oversee the work aren't qualified to do so, right? And so we need to set up a system that, that protects the people that are, are providing the goods and providing um, the services. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just think truth-telling just creates a culture of candor, and I'm all about 
naming like what it is, regardless of mm-hmm. it's going to hurt somebody's feelings, regardless of, you know, you don't agree with me. I feel like we could have a better relationship as people, as a country, even if we just tell it like it is. Somebody's feelings Word. are going to be hurt, but I, I really don't give a damn. Excuse my language. Like, I'm really, <laughs> it frustrates me that I'm always getting asked, like, you know, how can you say this is slavery? I can read. Like, I really, there's nothing wrong with my reading comprehension. I'm not a historian, but it's right there in black and white. How can you right. say that it's not? That's the only, like, that's the only answer. And and nobody to the day outside of saying that we, you know, we can't afford not to pay people, which, you know, we can go on and on. And, and I hold that, like, you know, the moral aspect of this fight for me is greater because we know, and it's also well documented about what my ancestors endured to try to make a way for me and the people that are going to come after me. And Hell, so what for you me, endure it's right personal. Now. Right. And, and for me, it's, 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 it's very personal. You know, it's very personal because I'm leaving this space to my own children, right? And, and statistics say that one in, in three of my children or the males in my life will enter the criminal justice system. So, you know, as a, a mother, a sister, as a black woman, like, I am concerned for the system that they could inherit. I'm not going to speak that to anybody's life, but that they could inherit. And, and honestly, both my brothers are incarcerated, so they have inherited it. So, again, this is, this is very personal, and, you know, it, it's difficult work, but I feel like there's strength in numbers, and a little bit of conversation and communication goes a long way. And I think that if we just stand in our truth, that there would be more people on the side of the right side of history than not. Thank you, Serena. Uh Let's go ahead and move over to Abraham. Any commentary, Abraham? Yeah, so um, Savannah's been a lot of good points. Uh, just, it's kind of funny when you were talking about how you don't give a damn about other people's feel with facts. It, I don't know if you guys watched Ben Shapiro. Um, the facts don't care about your feelings just kind of got to me, and and she's right. It doesn't matter how you feel about um, the issues if you're against it. The facts are merely there, and unless you want to. You know, crying about crying over it's not going to help anything. Um, and uh, watch your background you know, music, whoever that is, if you don't mind. I mean, your background sounds. Sorry, Abraham. Go ahead. Uh, can you hear me now? Hello. Yeah, it sounded like somebody was brushing something. Oh no. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but but that was a very kind of passionate and and really good speech Savannah had, and to kind of add on to that. Uh, she she did talk about the people who oversee prison labor don't actually have the qualifications necessary for their safety and and I think that's just a typical historical you know it's very unfortunate but the DOC is pretty filled with those um, unqualified people you know especially in death penalty cases where no doctor you know I'm I'm trying to I'm a nursing student and obviously. Having a medical professional kill someone is against the Hippocratic Oath. So what the DOC typically would do is they would hire people who aren't qualified, who aren't licensed, who don't know anything about 
how the body works, how peacefully humanely put someone down. It's basically giving, you know, a, a boy a real gun and saying and telling him to be responsible with it. Um, and with the labor... I'm sorry. So, so uh, there is definitely needs to be people who, again, if you have to oversee people working voluntarily, I'm not talking about in a poor system, make sure they meet those qualifications and have bills, have laws there. Because what I really fear, and I think pretty much everybody agrees on this, is the DOC works in a different world than what mainstream like they don't want anybody to know what goes on behind those doors and it is that fact alone that led the American revolution we didn't like it when the Brits were abusing our people and convicts in that system they didn't like privacy especially when the government has it why do you think conservatives are always Concerned about get the government out of everything. Now they might have it for the right or wrong reasons, but you know this is a very vulnerable aspect of society, and to have them term call the shots on who gets to do what with labor, having no oversight by the people that they serve for, it's it, it, it's un-American, and I'm pretty sure if George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or any of those guys who wrote that Constitution on Independence Hall. If they're alive today, they looked at the DOC. They would they would say this is not the U.S. we would ever envision later down the road. You know, there's no qualifications for these guys. It's, it, there's little oversight from independent organizations that can come in any time and hold those accountable for any violations. It has to be open. If you know, there's a saying: if the government's if the government expects us to follow the rules, we expect them to follow the Constitution and all the laws. Amen. And if they fall short on that, mm-hmm. what's the point of us having this social contract with the government in the first place? Then it That's becomes right. a then it becomes an issue where you're going to basically to quote the Declaration of Independence to alter or to abolish it as necessary to maintain that public trust in the government and the happiness of all people. Because what the, the idea is is, is is almost the same. Um, it's just it's not being applied today because we have such a massive private bureau of enforcing laws of, you know, these are vulnerable people. These are people who did bad things, right? These are people who may not have done bad things but got wrongly convicted. Who do you want them to um to, to govern people who have the qualification necessary, who have gone through rigorous training, or someone they just kind of picked up with uh, with a bias. In uh, Florida, it's gotten so bad that they they don't have enough guards there, uh, and they're kind of letting the prisoners run the, the prison. That they have to bring in 300 national guardsmen uh, to help with the prison. So they're covering the outside now. So I guess to guard the gates and the walls and things like that. National Guard uh, sent to mm-hmm. these prisons in Florida. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and move on to uh, Ed. Ed, do you have any comment follow up on this? Well, you know, you were talking about um, the price to pay for speaking out, especially right. against an issue like this. Um, and, 
you know, uh, there's there's a lot of different forms that we've seen of, of what backlash looks like to speaking out. Um, and it's, it's to me, I, I don't so much worry about the backlash to speaking out. Everybody, there's, for everything that you have to say, there's somebody out there to get offended by it. Um, and, and, of course, there are going to be people who get offended. What's that? I said I'm offended you know, by that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Uh, don't cancel me just yet. <laughs> but there you know, know. Um, they they it's it, to me that backlash is, it just comes with the times. You know that that that's something that you just need to be ready to accept and wear um, if if this is the kind of work that you want to do. Um, but something that you should pay attention to because politics is it, it involves. You know, it's it's kind of communication at an art form to a certain degree. It's it's war without bloodshed, um, and so it's you got to be very surgical with uh, your statements. Um, and and I think we saw that at work and the terror that can be wreaked from you know you don't speak on this certain issue. Um, slavery was something back in the day that our founding fathers, many of them were abolitionists themselves. Um, but they didn't dare weave an abolition of slavery into the founding of this country because they knew that the people would revolt immediately. Um, One of the reasons that this country was founded at the time that it was is because Britain was trying to um, abolish slavery in their own land, Um, and we knew that that abolition would come the way of, of this country and the 13 colonies right afterwards. And even then, the cotton industry in the South was its most lucrative. So, of course, to Savannah's point, there were people saying 300 years ago, we can't afford ending slavery. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why I like to I, – I don't even like to call it the private prison industry anymore. That sounds almost too dignified to me. Um, what I like <laughs> to call it is the peculiar institution. That's, that's yeah. what Southerners used to call slavery back in the day. They'd call it the peculiar institution peculiar. so that they didn't have to call it slavery. Um, and you see that in every, you know, the, the first corporation, you know, the first private corporation in the world to be created in the ire of, of capitalism. I don't want to, you know, make this a thing about capitalism, but the first real capitalist entity to exist on a global scale was the Dutch East India Company. These were the main right. tasks with kidnapping right. people from the shores of Africa. So their input was kidnapper. Yeah, and their output was cash for flesh. And in those boats that they used to take people from the shores of Africa to the Americas, they had occupancy quotas on those boats. These boats need to be 90-something-something so percent full with bodies that we can take to the Americas to sell. If they are not mm-hmm. this number full, then it's not profitable to us. And today, if we look at private prison contracts, if we look at contracts that companies like Core Civic have with the mm-hmm. state government that they lie in, they have empty bed quotas. Or sometimes they just call them occupancy quotas themselves, where it says you need to keep this prison uh, usually somewhere between 95 and 97 to 100% occupancy for up to 25 years. Exactly. And if if those uh, state governments are not able to produce enough conviction, that certain number of people in those cells, 
they owe companies like CoreCivic sometimes upwards of $15 million a taxpayer. Money. Right. A low crime so we're tax, trapped. they call it. Yeah. We're trapped in a, in a carceral state. And if you, if you take that all the way down, and I hate to bring this back around to the law enforcement again, but I think that the math there, the, the money math behind mass incarceration and institutional racism, you, you, you see it most clearly in the eyes of a cop. You know, If you have a financial incentive to put people away, to put chains on people, put them in the back of the car, and get their you know, statements ready so that the judge has an easy time convicting them, if that is your job, if that is the financial incentive of your work, you're not going to go to the upscale neighborhood where kids are, you know, they've, they've got right. easy access to a lawyer. They've got funds to defend themselves. You're going to go to the neighborhood where people are living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, right. a criminal conviction is going to bring their whole house down because they don't have the means to fight that. And you can apply that in the prisons too, you know. Max, you pointed out the, the, uh, the lack of potential employees in the correction system in Florida. Um, Florida actually pays their prison guards relatively well when you consider that the national average for the salary of a CO is $23,000 a year. $23,000. Exactly. In Missouri, they pay their prison guards eighteen grand a year. And, uh, oh, this, this is, you know, you, you talk about stories that you don't want getting out. In, in Missouri, they've got a situation where – Drug cartels have taken notice of the salaries that Missouri prison guards get. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with the situation in the Parchment facility in 2019 before COVID happened. But drug cartels were getting word to COs saying, drop your uniform off and your badge and your credentials off at this address. Come back tomorrow and you can pick it up. And when you pick it back up, We'll give you a duffel bag with your entire year's salary in that bag of cash. And so then you've got hitmen for the cartels who are dressing up in CO outfits, going into prisons, and taking people out. They're, they're, they've become war zones, essentially. And it's because it, the, the devastation of this issue lies on both sides of the war between our, our law enforcement institutions and our disenfranchised communities of color. Hey, Edmund, um, I do have one more thing I want to play before you guys leave today, and I have a question that I want to ask you, uh, all three of you, about uh, uh, another topic as well. Uh, and time is running fast, so if you don't mind, I'm going to move it on uh, to one thing in particular regarding the private prisons. There's a tool that you mm-hmm. can use called Prison Free Funds, prisonfreefunds.org. If you go there, you can find out if you're invested in the construction of for-profit private prisons. If it's in your 401k, if it's in your retirement program, if it's in your blind trust, wherever it may be, all you got to do is fill in the information, and you can find out and divest from that. Uh, we work with the uh, teachers union and help to divest over a hundred million dollars in that way. We also work with several universities and have divested uh, nearly half a billion dollars. So you can do that mm-hmm. personally by going to prisonfreefunds.org. Um, mm. We were talking before about 
uh, you know, how the inmates are treated, what they're forced to do. Uh, and that's a part of those guidelines I mentioned earlier, the Harvard Bellagio guidelines, the powers attached to the right of ownership. Uh, and we've seen that exercise over and over and over again. Uh, that's just a comment I want to add in there so people remember there is a definition for slavery. But here's the question I have for all three of you. Uh, and it's pretty funny that you mentioned the Dutch because it's part of the question. Uh, Philadelphia has apologized for experiments on black inmates within the past few weeks. California Medical University has apologized for experimenting on prisoners. And you can rest assured it was primarily black and brown prisoners. And the Dutch leadership has apologized for the Netherlands' role in the slave trade. Now, what do these apologies mean to you uh, as an abolitionist in this fight? Because there's nothing behind them except the words. So let's start with Abraham. Oh, I'm sorry, Edmund, you always speak. No, 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 Abraham, if you want to go, you go. No, you can go. Uh, That's fine. Oh, um, well, yeah. I I see appeasement. I think people know that a very serious deliberation on reparations is on the horizon. Um, And and that's something that I think – I think there are few political concepts in this country that terrify white people more than that. Um, There's a a shift that we're going to be seeing over the next 10 years as voting populaces around the country uh, have less and less of a white proportion to them. This is one of the main reasons why abortion is still a big political topic to this day. Um, Policymakers back in the 70s and 80s noticed that very soon white people will lose their numerical majority in this country. Uh, And so measures needed to be taken to make sure that that shift does not happen. These were policy goals of of people like Nixon, Reagan, Ford, Bush, Clinton, um, all of those people. They they had that shift coming up, that supposedly terrifying time. And you can relay this back to the South when the black codes were instituted because blacks had a voting majority. Now that they were free and no longer slaves in South Carolina, in Alabama, in Missouri, um, in Florida, they made up the majority of people. And I think to this day, the, the power structures that be are a bit insecure on giving up that power. So when I see those apologies, I think of it as a preemptive measure so that when the next debate comes up, they can say they already did their due diligence. Um, we had a, uh, an issue like that back in the day. Um, This is maybe about, oh, I guess about two years ago now. Um, Malcolm X's father was killed in Lansing in 1931. And there were city officials who assisted in his murder through this secret society um, that was an offshoot of the KKK. Um, We called on the city of Lansing to apologize for its role in the death of Malcolm's father. Our, our message was if, if, you, if you let this year roll by without addressing the city's role in it, you will have let 90 years go by um, still saying that Malcolm X's father's death was a suicide and not a murder at the hands of persons unknown. 
And their response, the city's response to those requests from us was, we've already named a street after Malcolm X. We love Malcolm X. He, he, he lived – it's a half measure that they can say in, in going forward, well, they've already done their due diligence. And, Max, I'm glad you brought that up because you've given me another policy idea because as much as I, I feel cynical sometimes about these apologies, it's still good to raise awareness that these things happened in our history. It's an admission um, of guilt. It's an admission of guilt. In Michigan, we need something like that on our books. In the era of eugenics, in the early 1900s, Michigan as a state sterilized, sterilized 18,000 black women. Now, that's, that's quite a concept right there. That, that's that's a, a, a horrific that's a atrocity. Yes, exactly, that our state is responsible for. And to this day, we haven't heard much on it. Wow. All right, well, let's go ahead and... Move on to our other guests then uh, Some commentary uh, If you can keep it to a couple of minutes that'd be great uh, I still have one more track I want to play And then we want to give you an opportunity To say whatever you want to say to our listening audience uh, So let's go to Abraham Yeah so a lot of what was said there I agree Yes there's a saying action or, um, There is a saying that Actions speak louder than words But you know to confess and to put yourself in such um, humility, not in a bad way, but in a way to redeem and be held accountable, I think is a good step. Sadly, though, we live in a reality where not just, I mean, we're talking about even local officials, people who control your, who have the ability, ability to change your life for the better or for worse in your color of law, the Department of Corrections, government institutions, you name it, typically they wouldn't apologize for their mistakes. They think they do the right thing when when the media or um, any person, for that matter, catches their act and kind of produces it for the masses to see. But even then, even before being held accountable, uh, I think apology is one of the most strongest things you can do. They might seem very, you know, mundane and, and out-to-date, but it, it's, I think it's a good step. Like you said, there's a lot of work to do. But there's a saying, one of the biggest, or basically the, the first step, in a sense, to right a wrong is to acknowledge where you're wrong and come to terms with it, right? right. And then change it. So as long as you have that, then you're going to have the, 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 um, I wouldn't say the energy is the right word, but you're going to have all the resources you can do the best of your abilities to make it better. It's just that, you know, we live in a world where people think they're right and you're wrong and whatever atrocity goes on, no need to apologize for it. Um, we need to see more accountability and forgiveness um, in order to make things move forward for a brighter future. And then, you know, make those things. So that's pretty much it. Um, because uh, it was pretty much summed by what I'm, and everyone said it um, earlier. So, I believe it was James Baldwin who said, "Not every issue that we face can be solved, but nothing can be solved unless it's faced." Until it's faced. That's right. right. Uh, Savannah, uh, Mike, time to you. Hey, Don't I'm forget here. to Sorry. unmute yourself. Okay. 
I I did for um so yeah I just was gonna hone in in a conversation about like really acknowledging um what's right and what's wrong I think the thing about what we're what we're doing in abolishing slavery I think um there's no question about whether or not this is right or wrong I don't think that there I haven't gotten any objection from folks who inherently believe and would be willing to say out loud that slavery was the right thing to do. Um, But when looking at, like, accountability and, you know, again, it's not about blame, but, like, holding people accountable for um, not letting go, right, and and choosing to continue these same practices that we know have harmed the country, um, you know, since 1865. Um, That, for me, is what is wrong. And I think that as long as we allow people um, to find safety in their silence, um, you know, we're, we're complicit, right? And we have to like, um, as a, as a people, like, and, and as citizens, I hold our neighbors, I hold our community accountable, whether they're, they have loved ones that are incarcerated or not, whether they've ever been incarcerated or not, whether they're black or, you know, whatever race they are, like, to acknowledge when they see something wrong, um, at, because it's, it's unconstitutional, right? <laughs> it's just, it, it's unconstitutional. And there's no doubt about it. There's no um, question about it. So, and I just want to thank um, Edmund for like naming um, all the historical perspectives that he did, and for the work that mm-hmm. they're doing in um, in Michigan, because um, you were definitely on point with with every um, historical point that you made. Yes, I'm like you, Savannah. I read. Uh, all right, listen, we wow. are, we, what I'm going to do is we're going to play one more musical clip, and this is just for our listening uh, purposes. Uh, when we come back from the clip, I, I want to give you all the opportunity to say whatever you want to say to our audience. Uh, we'll have about five minutes to do so for the three of us, so if you can just keep it brief, tell them uh, what it is they can do to help you in North Carolina and in Michigan and in Texas and for the ASNN. So we're going to listen to Judge Lynn. Uh, from TV, and she talks about the first time she sent a black man to prison, and she says they only know how they feel, and that's going to be followed by Freedom, featuring the Freedom Trial, uh, a Choy, I think, C-H-O-Y, and City Fidelia. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. We'll be right back after this. Abolition. 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 I put my first brother in jail in 1994. He didn't mind going to jail. He would say, well, Judge, why are you bothering me? I can go to jail. Just go ahead and do it. I don't want to deal with your probation conditions and your anger management, and I'm not going to talk to the guy that I hit and resolve it so I cannot go to jail. I'll just do the year. We used to pick cotton. Now we are the cotton. We are the product in the system, in the paid prisons that they make money off of, and they count on you guys not being able to handle your emotions. So you go. Not over millions of dollars. Not over the health and welfare of your wife and children. Why? Every brother I sent to prison didn't know what the fight was about. All he knew is how he felt about it. 
niggas that live in that freedom like when they go up. They say we got freedom according to me. That ain't enough. No, that ain't enough. No. No clue where I'm gone. I've been in all the bruises I'm gone. I might bump my head, I might fall instead of then spread my wings like I'm Jordan. I'm not afraid of fat, I'm not afraid of fat. Give me the book of life, I read it all in brown. Cause I'm getting it, living life limitless. My crew think like communists, cause we all benefit. When I benefit, I hope that they notice it. Hold them down to the gravy shit, even though I get paid a bit. When I paid a lot, with a lot of relationships, we will go from some dealers to dealers to dealerships. Got a fun happiness, dog. Prison is touch what I'm having. I got these shackles up for me, cause I wanna be free. Now that I know it. I got these shackles up for me, cause I wanna be free.
YouTube.com slash Abolition Today because we have a great abolitionist playlist there that you can listen to, drive around all day or work, whatever you do. So check that out. Uh, we're going to do a final round for our guests, you know, as Max stated before we went into it. So you can just uh, let the people know how to get in contact with you, how to team up hey, with you, and hey, Yusuf, push this forward. Sure. Before we do the final round, I just want to make a quick announcement. We'll be going about five minutes over time. So if you want to hear the show in its entirety right now during the live stream, call in at 515-605-9814. That's 515-605-9814. If you're not able to do that, you can catch the program in its uh, entirety after it ends. I think it takes about 10 minutes for it to load up. Just wanted to let you know that. Right. Yeah, for sure. That way, you know, they can catch everything. Like, my mom, she tuned in late, so she she wants to be able to catch uh, uh, Abraham when he first came on. So, definitely awesome. do that. Speaking, speaking of, let's start with Brother Abraham. Uh, first, I want to say mm-hmm. on behalf of both Yusuf and myself, thank you for being here today. We salute yes. you for your efforts and what you're doing in North Carolina, and we look forward to working with you throughout this year to get this done. So, Abraham, uh, anything you'd like to tell us, our audience, and how can they help you with your efforts? Yeah, before I kind of get into it again, Max, many thanks for inviting me over. This was an excellent podcast and excellent discussion with everybody on board. And I just, I I really like this crowd, and I hope it gets bigger in the near future along with our goals. Now, in terms of the contact information, the best way to help me would be primarily to raise awareness in North Carolina. Obviously, our neighbor, Tennessee, was able to get it done out west. But when I spoke to my legislator about this, he did say one important thing. North Carolina Republicans are different from Tennessee Republicans and Alabama Republicans, regardless of kind of how bland and redundant that may sound. Our state is basically almost... So we have a Democratic governor right now. We are almost at a supermajority in both chambers of our North Carolina legislature. And almost, I think we're with a couple seats to override the Democratic governor's vetoes. And our state Supreme Court recently, that this past election cycle, um, is also a Republican majority. So the biggest hurdle my state legislator was reaching out to me was trying to get his colleagues, he's a Democrat, but... It'll be convincing Republicans on getting the votes necessary because you need three-fifths in both our NC House and NC Senate for it to go onto the ballot for voters to approve. Now, I don't know if – I don't think, Max, you were able to talk to him yet. Hopefully in the coming weeks um, or months you should be able to. Yes. The legislative session, for those just wondering, it's going to start in February. So February is basically not just – regarding the bill I'm sending to my legislator, but all the bills in North Carolina typically. They go in effect in February. That's when the legislative session starts. And the deadline for everything is May. But the earlier the better. If you can reach out in February and reach out to your state representative in particular, that will be the best. Um, I don't know if I'm saying your name right. Hassan, you you said you live in Charlotte, right? Right. Yeah, Yusuf. Call me Yusuf, and I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna text you, 
and the we can, thing you know, I would, we can link up. Okay. The biggest thing I'd recommend for you, in addition to what you're doing, in and I'm terms new, of I'm new to down here. I've only been down here since uh, July. Okay. Well, reach out to your representative for your area because it's gonna mm-hmm. there's gonna be a pattern eventually. Because t- typically, you know, the unfortunate thing is in North Carolina, since it's really a swing state, things don't really get done unless you see a big support for it. So I think getting all our legislators involved on both sides of the aisle would be okay. the most important thing. And for those in North Carolina who want to reach out to me, um, you can reach out to me through my email. It is S, as in Sierra, Y, Yankee, E, Echo, D, Delta, and then B, as in Bravo, 4147 at connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, the way you spell connect, dot Durham Tech, D-U-R-H-A-M-T-E-C-H, dot E-D-U. And as the legislative session continues, I'm going to try my very best to make sure that my state legislator is able to do his due diligence in speaking with committees and our state legislator to get it done in North Carolina. He told me it wasn't a guarantee, like, but obviously, you know, nothing's a guarantee in life, but that's not going to stop me from making something that should have been done, you know, 146 years ago. Right. So, that's my uh, email address. Again, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. And um, I look forward to working with you guys in the future and just kind of giving you updates, hopefully. Thank you, But brother. thank you again. For <clears throat> I appreciate it. We're going to share the words of the ancestors uh, uh, when the show, uh, at the end of the show. And also, John uh, Nipple out of North Carolina says he's happy that we have an organizer for North Carolina, and he's looking forward to meeting you and seeing what he can do to help push this through. He's a huge supporter of the program and the abolitionist wow. movement. I didn't know uh, John was in North Carolina. Yep. Uh, and Brother Abraham, uh, any final comments for the evening, and how can we help you in Michigan? Uh, reminder, you only have 60 seconds left if you want to hear the rest of the program live, 515-604-9814, 515-605-9814. Back to you, Brother Abraham. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Brother Edmund. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Because you were ah, saying amen for me. Well, so. I'm sorry about oh, that. Yeah, okay. So closing remarks, first and foremost, since I'm a minister, what you can do for us is uh, pray for us and uh, pray for the National Network. And pray for Max and his family as well. Um, you know, you want to talk about the, the 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 blowback we can get from the powers that be. That, that is that is the front lines right there. Um, and then I also want to ask everybody to pray for the Detroit Lions because they're about to knock the Green Bay Packers out of the playoffs. <laughs> anyway, sorry, back to, um, I'm a Packers fan, but so yeah. I don't feel so happy about that. <laughs> nah, all right. Well, we can address that off air. Well, um, Sunday Sunday night football. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but um, anyway, I, I think the, the easiest way is to get uh, get in touch with us. Um, we've been seeing a lot of good social media activity right out of the gate to start 2021. So if you uh, have Instagram or Twitter, we are at End Slavery Mi, um, and you can send us a message on there. Um, I, I'm, I'm checking that as often as I can. And um, if, if you don't have one of those. You can hit me up on Facebook. I'm uh, I'm friends with uh, Max, so you might be able to find me there. Shoot me a message on that. 
or if you want to email me, it's just my full name, edmundrushton23 at gmail.com. Um, you can donate to us as well. We will be having a website that's actually going live tomorrow. So um, that will be on our Instagram and our Twitter uh, for anybody who wants to help us out. We know we're, we're going to need all the help we can get. It takes a lot of resources to get a bill through the Michigan House. we got to run some statewide polls, set up a database so that we know about the other legislative activity going on in our state. So there's a, a, a lot of different ways that you can help. If you're interested in helping us out, uh, just shoot me a message on one of those platforms, and I got I got a whole laundry list of uh, different uh, tasks that anybody can help us with. We're, we're very excited, and um, and yeah, I want to thank I want to thank uh, Abolition Today, Savannah, Max, Hassan um, for having me on here. It means a, a a very great deal to me, and um, I'm I'm very excited about what we can accomplish this year. I think um, you know ending the exception. We talk about it a lot. Is we're we're concluding this period of oppression in America, but we are also beginning a new period as well to bring us back to the beginning with the concept of the freed men. In the South in the 1870s, there were more black United States senators than there have ever been in our history, and those numbers hold up even to this day. I'm talking about folks like Robert Smalls in South Carolina. Um, but in order to make sure that something like this never happens again, in case we find slavery by yet another name down the road, we need folks who know what it's like to be on the inside in positions of power. Um, and as a, this is my calling card to Republicans who, who maybe feel more pro-law enforcement, pro-punishment. I like to tell them that the more prisoners we put in Congress, the more congressmen we can put in prison. Uh, that's, mm. <laughs> that's our calling mm. And I think, you know, that goes across the board. I think something to really uh, uh, change the perspective of this country is to change the makeup of our leadership. And we need justice-impacted individuals. We need formerly incarcerated individuals in seats of elected power. Uh, and that, that, that really is the long game. Um, so any states that have already wrapped their fight to get the exception clause out off the Constitution through the ballot – um, that the next step of this is getting people in positions of power who can speak to this movement, who can speak to the people that this movement fights for. And so we've got a lot to look forward to. I think the, the 2020s are going to be remembered as a decade for prison reform, like how the 1960s were for civil That's rights. Right. That's what we got to build. Uh, That's great. Edmund, and once again, on behalf of the host here, uh, we were proud to host both this evening as well as you, Sister Savannah. Uh, any final comments that you have for our audience, and how can we support you not only in Texas, but also with the Abolish Slavery National Network, which you are not a lead organizer? Hey, guys. Thank you, Max. Thank you so much. Um, so speaking of power, um, man, the Abolish Slavery National Network, um, I'm just thinking about all that we've a been able to accomplish in this short time since August of 2020 um, because of people like Max and Yusuf and now, you know, our, our new folks like Edmund and Abraham um, seeking to, like, be problem solvers and resolve um, the issues with the constitutions in their state and the practices of um, the treatment of their ex co incarcerated workers. Um, so uh, you can reach me on my personal um, social, Savannah 
1214, that's Savannah with the H, 1214, Abolish Slavery National Network. We have our website, um, www.abolishslavery.us. Um, we are at in the exception on um, Instagram. We're on Twitter, and we do have a TikTok now. Um, you can also support us with a donation. Um, we've pretty much doubled our successes over the the past couple of years, and we anticipate to have more wins and more victories across the country. Um, and we can't do this without your um, support of time and of course monetary donations. You can make a donation on our website. Um, if you find it on your heart to do so. Um, but thank you again for this platform. Um, thank you. Thank you, everyone who has supported us in the media. And um, we're just excited about 2023 and looking forward to the anticipated. I think we got about 22 states now um, that are going to be working toward in, um, ending constitutional slavery and, and, of course, the practice of slavery where they live. And um, I couldn't be more excited. So thank you, everyone. Thank you so much, Savannah. I appreciate that. Indeed, thank you, Savannah. I was talking with my mute on. But thank you so much, <laughs> uh, Savannah, Abraham, and Edmund for being here with us tonight. Uh, it was a wonderful program. We started our first uh, show of the year by breaking all the rules. We're running about 15 minutes over, and that's okay because it's our program and we can do what we want to do. Uh, that's right. So if you want to listen to this program, there you it's go. Entirety, <laughs> On the archive, uh, I do want to say one more time, thank you all three. Uh, you guys are superheroes. Speaking of, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and tonight we're going to conclude our program with a speech by Wilbur Wilberforce. And if you don't know, the slogan of abolition today is you can never again say that you did not know. That comes directly from Wilbur Wilberforce, who was right. a uh, catalyst for the end of the transatlantic slave trade. His quote is, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. And I think that quote is perfect to conclude this evening. So, Yusuf, if you want to thank our sponsors and tell them how they can follow up with us, and then we'll go into that breaking together. Yeah, man, because I can't wait to hear that again. It's such a great speech. But we definitely want to thank our sponsors and partners, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the I Am We Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. So remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash abolition today. And also, Abolition Today is available on all major podcast platforms. You can join the movement at abolishslavery.us, and that'll send. And then we also want you to send end the exception as one word, no spaces. Text that to 52886 and follow the prompts. That's going to send a signed petition on your behalf to your congressional reps in support of the proposed 28th Amendment to repeal and replace the exception clause to the 13th Amendment. And as Max just announced, We'll be listening to Wilbur Wilberforce's abolition speech from May 12, 1789. And that's going to be followed up by Andrew Day singing, I wish I knew how it feels 
to be free. Wow. Great show, Max. You know, great to be back on the air. We want you all to go to our Abolition Today Facebook page, subscribe to it if you haven't already, turn on your notifications, because there are a lot of articles that we uh, have, you know, it's a lot of information that sometimes doesn't make it onto the air, but we do put it onto the onto the uh, our page. So make sure you go there and check that out. We'll be back next Sunday, October uh, October ninth. Uh, next Sunday, January fifteenth. I believe that's next Sunday, the fifteenth. Yes. With another master class on slavery abolition. So until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Peace. Abolition. Abolition. Abolition Abolition speech by William Wilberforce, May 12, 1789. When I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am to bring before the House, a subject in which the interests not of this country, nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world, and of posterity are involved, and when I think, at the same time, on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, when these reflections press upon my mind, it is impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But when I reflect, however, on the encouragement which I have had through the whole course of a long and laborious examination of this question, and how much candor I have experienced, and how conviction has increased within my own mind, in proportion as I have advanced in my labors, when I reflect, especially, that however adverse any gentleman may now be, yet we shall all be of one opinion in the end, when I turn myself to these thoughts, I take courage. I determine to forget all my other fears, and I march forward with a firmer step in the full assurance that my cause will bear me out, and that I shall be able to justify upon the clearest principles every resolution in my hand, the avowed end of which is the total abolition of the slave trade. I wish exceedingly, in the outset, to guard both myself and the House from entering into the subject with any sort of passion. It is not their passions I shall appeal to. I ask only for their cool and impartial reason, and I wish not to take them by surprise, but to deliberate point by point upon every part of this question. I mean not to accuse any one, but to take the shame upon myself, in common, indeed, with the whole Parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority. We are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty, and not to exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame on others. And I therefore deprecate every kind of reflection against the various descriptions of people who are more immediately involved in this wretched business. Having now disposed of the first part of this subject, I must speak of the transit of the slaves in the West Indies. This, I confess, in my own opinion, is the most wretched part of the whole subject. So much misery condensed in so little room is more than the human imagination had ever before conceived. I will not accuse the Liverpool merchants. I will allow them, nay, I will believe them to be men of humanity, and I will therefore believe, if it were not for the enormous magnitude and extent of the evil which distracts their attention from individual cases and makes them think generally, and therefore less feelingly on the subject, they would never have persisted in the trade. I verily believe, therefore, if the wretchedness of any one of the many hundred negroes stowed in each ship could be brought before their view and remain within the sight of the African merchant, that there is no one among them whose heart would bear it. Let any one imagine to himself six or seven hundred of these wretches, chained two and two, surrounded with every object that is nauseous and disgusting, diseased and struggling under every kind of wretchedness. How can we bear to think of such a scene as this? 
one would think it had been determined to heap upon them all the varieties of bodily pain, for the purpose of blunting the feelings of the mind. And yet, in this very point, to show the power of human prejudice, the situation of the slaves has been described by Mr. Norris, one of the Liverpool delegates, in a manner which I am sure will convince the House how interest can draw a film across the eyes, so thick that total blindness could do no more, and how it is our duty, therefore, to trust not to the reasonings of interested men, or to their way of coloring a transaction. Their apartments, says Mr. Norris, are fitted up as much for their advantage as circumstances will admit. The right ankle of one, indeed, is connected with the left ankle of another by a small iron fetter, and if they are turbulent, by another on their wrists. They have several meals a day, some of their own country provisions, with the best sauces of African cookery, and by way of variety, another meal of pulse, according to European taste. After breakfast they have water to wash themselves, while their apartments are perfumed with frankincense and lime juice. Before dinner they are amused after the manner of their country. The song and dance are promoted. And, as if the whole was really a scene of pleasure and dissipation, it is added that games of chance are furnished. The men play and sing, while the women and girls make fanciful ornaments with beads, which they are plentifully supplied with. Such is the sort of strain in which the Liverpool delegates, and particularly Mr. Norris, gave evidence before the Privy Council. What will the House think when, by the concurring testimony of other witnesses, the true history is laid open? The slaves, who are sometimes described as rejoicing at their captivity, are so wrung with misery at leaving their country, that it is the constant practice to set sail at night, lest they should be sensible of their departure. The poles which Mr. Norris talks of are horse-beans, and the scantiness, both of water and provision, was suggested by the very legislature of Jamaica in the report of their committee, to be a subject that called for the interference of Parliament. Mr. Norris talks of frankincense and lime-juice, when surgeons tell you the slaves are stowed so close that there is not room to tread among them, and when you have it in evidence from Sir George Young that even in a ship which wanted two hundred of her complement, the stench was intolerable. The song and the dance, says Mr. Norris, are promoted. It had been more fair, perhaps, if he had explained that word promoted. The truth is that for the sake of exercise, these miserable wretches, loaded with chains, oppressed with disease and wretchedness, are forced to dance by the terror of the lash, and sometimes by the actual use of it. I, says one of the other evidences, was implored to dance the men, while another person danced the women. Such, then, is the meaning of the word promoted, and it may be observed, too, with respect to food, that an instrument is sometimes carried out in order to force them to eat, which is the same sort of proof how much they enjoy themselves in that instance also. As to their singing, what shall we say when we are told that their songs are songs of lamentation upon their departure, which, while they sing, are always in tears, insomuch that one captain, more humane as I should conceive him, therefore, than the rest, threatened one of the women with a flogging, because the mournfulness of her song was too painful for his feelings. In order, however, not to trust too much to any sort of description, I will call the attention of the house to one species of evidence which is absolutely infallible. Death, at least, is a sure ground of evidence, and the proportion of deaths will not only confirm, but if possible, will even aggravate our suspicion of their misery in the transit. It will be found, upon an average of all the ships of which evidence has been given at the Privy Council, that exclusive of those who perish before they sail, not less than twelve and a half percent perish in the passage. Besides these, the Jamaica report tells you that not less than four and a half percent die on shore before the day of sail, which is only a week or two from the time of landing. One-third more die in the seasoning, and this in a country exactly like our own, where they are healthy and happy as some of the evidences would pretend. The diseases, however, which they contract on shipboard, 
the astringent washes which are to hide their wounds, and the mischievous tricks used to make them up for sale, are, as the Jamaica report says, a most precious and valuable report, which I shall often have to advert to, one principal cause of this mortality. Upon the whole, however, here is a mortality of about 50%, and this among Negroes who are not bought unless, as the phrase is with cattle, they are sound in wind and limb. How then can the house refuse its belief to the multiplied testimonies before the Privy Council of the savage treatment of the Negroes in the Middle Passage? Nay, indeed, what need is there of any evidence? The number of deaths speaks for itself, and makes all such inquiries superfluous. As soon as I ever had arrived thus far in my investigation of the slave trade, I confess to you, sir, so enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition. A trade founded in iniquity, and carried on as this was, must be abolished. Let the policy be what it might, let the consequences be what they would. I from this time determined that I would never rest till I had effected its abolition.